Howdy folks and welcome to Found Flicks. On this Indian Explained, we're looking at Resurrection, where a woman's carefully constructed life gets upended when an unwelcome shadow from her past returns, forcing her to confront the monster she's evaded for decades. Resurrection is more of a slow burn psychological thriller rather than a standard horror movie, and if anything feels that it's more like a character study for our protagonist Maggie. Luckily, she's played by Rebecca Hall, who I'd be more than compelled to watch read the back of a cereal box, so this being all about her is definitely a plus. She goes through a whole ass transformation over the course of the movie, starting in a very meticulously created world of her own design. But then other issues start seeping in. Then of course, when her dangerous former lover David reappears, her fears and insecurities come barreling to the forefront. As she gets deeper into her obsession with protecting her family, things suddenly veer into a potentially supernatural direction. This leaves us especially by the end questioning everything that we saw. Was this as strange as it appeared on the surface, or is it all a result of Maggie finally succumbing to her problems and losing touch with reality. It's one of those kind of stories, and I feel like with this one, the answer becomes quite clear in the end. So let's check out Resurrection, breaking down the story, including what the deal is with David, Maggie's important backstory that frames her character, and explaining the ending and what it means. We're initially thrust into a conversation between Margaret and her intern Gwen regarding her a-hole boyfriend. He makes jokes at her expense, and despite her asking him to stop, he continues to make fun of her. Maggie points out, so he knows the jokes hurt her feelings, but does it anyway? Meaning he's basically a sadist. They never understand why others aren't enjoying their sadism as much as they are. She's asked her to find someone that makes her feel good. Can she do that? Gwen sheepishly nods and asks her to keep their conversation between them. Maggie agrees, smiling she'll keep it as protected as Fort Knox. She traverses the halls of the office building and several people tell her goodnight on the way by. She pops into her office to retrieve her bag and notices a speck of dirt on the desk that she appears obliged to immediately brush away. Her meticulous nature is further solidified when she continues her routine with a high-impact run by the waterfront, followed by a nice relaxing beer on the couch. Yet the routine doesn't actually provide her with fulfillment, so she calls her lover Peter for some sexy times. They were clearly having an affair, with Maggie asking afterwards how his wife is doing. Okay, could be worse, he shrugs. She curiously asks if he ever draws. He does occasionally with his kid. And she reveals that she made a drawing the other day. An abstract, geometric kind of thing. She used to draw, but hasn't drawn anything for 22 years, going on that she used to be obsessed with drawing. She would do it for hours and hours, even forgetting to eat and where she was. Our first indicator that something is starting to seep back into Maggie's life from her past that she has kept repressed for all these years. She gets ready in the morning, again a very detail-oriented, rigid situation, and then goes to wake up her teenage daughter Abby. As she is nearly 18 years old, she's definitely got some tood, not wanting to wake up, even when she offers to make breakfast. Lastly, it's time to break out the big guns, the steamroller. And Maggie rolls over her kid to her annoyance. Back at the office, she is once more cordial to several others and see that her boy toy Peter is a co-worker, sharing a stiff exchange at his desk. She gives a presentation to a group and whatever they're working on sounds like a serious breakthrough. But what's more notable is how confident and well-spoken Maggie is in front of the group, even landing some jokes that garner big laughs. At home is a different story, as she does her best to deal with Abby maturing and growing apart from her mom. She first has to clean up a mess of hers and then ask what it is that she wants for dinner. Abby shrugs there's no need and goes to fetch a bowl of cereal, which Maggie scolds her is not a meal. Doesn't matter anyway, as she's off to her buddy Lucy's, which is the first that her mom has heard of it. What's the big deal? She's telling her now, you know. Oh, teenagers. 
So much fun. All Maggie wants her to do is let her know in advance. Is that so difficult? Abby groans that she'll take it into consideration and weirdly yanks a gross old tooth out of her mouth. But no, it's not hers. Then uh, whose is it? Abby isn't sure. She says it appeared in her change purse today and both are baffled by its unknown origin. We then perhaps understand why Maggie appears so domineering over her daughter as she's about to head off to college and asks her to be safe when she's off at school. She sarcastically tells her that she'll take any pill a frat guy hands over and sulks off. She then turns her attention back to the mystery tooth, but decides to toss it away. She continues her running and reward beer routine, and even the porking as part of the routine apparently, as Peter calls and she pays him a visit. While they are getting busy, Abby calls and she misses it. The deed done, Peter tries to sell her on taking a trip to a cabin for the weekend, and Maggie finally checks her phone. As soon as seeing it, she gasps and rushes to the hospital, finding Abby with a pretty serious leg injury, which Abby tries to downplay as no big deal. She mentions that it happened while riding bikes, but weirdly Maggie points out she doesn't know how. Uh, what? She doesn't know how to ride a bike, meaning Maggie must have never taught her. And now we're getting that she is maybe a little bit overbearing as a parent. <laughs> Just a little touch. It's all out of fear of Abby getting hurt. And now she has been reinforcing this belief. As soon as Abby left her protective eye, she got injured and she was drinking too. Biking and drinking. Dangerous combo, that's for sure. It feels even more that Maggie refused to believe that her daughter is growing up, even tucking her in when they get back home. Naturally, Abby groans that she's tired of this routine. I mean, she is 17 years old. Little late for tucky time. Maggie tells her to not be scared, and Abby says that she isn't. She assures her everything will be alright, and she currently fires back, I know. Maggie apologizes for not getting the text sooner, and fibs that she was at work. Abby still isn't really bothered, interrupting with an I know, it's fine. She goes further and pushes her mom away, complaining that she's tired from bleeding all day. There really is a big kind of divide already seen happening here between the two. Like Maggie is all like, don't be scared, I'm not. It's gonna be okay, I know. Kind of like Maggie is in her own carefully constructed world in a way, as I said. She has another impromptu relationship therapy session with Gwen. She asked her boyfriend to do one thing for her and he only wanted to know what he would get in return. His refusal to compromise was enough for her to end things and tell him off for good. Maggie is impressed, calling her tougher than leather and smiles confidently that there's gonna be a happy ending for her. Yet things take a distressing turn for Maggie's carefully crafted world while at a work conference. The lady is drunk droning on about biotech or something, and Maggie is having trouble paying attention. To be fair, it does seem pretty boring. She stretches, and her eyes wander around the room. Then, someone in particular catches her attention, and she appears instantly troubled by his presence. Her breath quickens, and she begins to hyperventilate. She attempts to calm her breathing, but has to leave the room, stumbling her way through the rows. She rushes outside, still heaving, and the sounds of sirens and low rumbling become overwhelming in her ears. Looks like she's having a full-blown panic attack. She instinctively starts to run as fast as she can to deal with her emotions and sprints all the way back to her place. She goes right to Abby's room and is relieved to see her there. Abby is confused by her mom's erratic behavior, but Maggie insists that she's fine, just feeling a little bit off. She leaves to take a shower, ordering for her to not go anywhere. While the water runs, she has a full-on breakdown, covering her mouth to drown out the sobs. She apparently especially does not want her daughter to know how she's truly feeling. She looks up David Moore online, who must be that man from the conference 
conference. Abby interrupts her research, and she quickly closes the laptop, and promises she's feeling much better now. The subject turns to dinner again, but Abby is off to her friend's place. This time, now more worried about her than ever. She puts her foot down, she's staying home, and goes out way too much anyway. Abby retorts they're just innocently playing video games, but she asserts that they're actually drinking and getting her leg carved up. Well, that is true. They both later fall asleep on the couch, Maggie keeping a protective arm around her the whole time. A ding echoes out from somewhere, and she bizarrely hears what sounds like someone knocking at the window. She peers through the curtains, but nothing is there. Smoke starts billowing from the oven, and she opens it up, seeing only darkness and more smoke pluming from within. She pulls out what looks like an extra crispy baby in there, and Maggie smiles tenderly. It suddenly screams, and she's startled awake. Oh boy, crispy baby, huh? Just getting started here. She still appears affected and continues to spiral, trying to calm herself down. She gets a buzz on her phone from Abby, demanding that she stop texting her so much. Yeah, it's a bit much, it looks like. Gwen returns in search of more help, but Maggie is on edge and barks that it is not a good time. Seeking some kind of solace, she rings Peter for a bathroom bone. It too is unsuccessful in helping, as he's not too into the whole getting it on in a bathroom setup, leaving her more frustrated than before. Nothing sexier than a gross office bathroom. Her protective nature towards Abby begins to really cross a disturbing line, staring at her playing video games through a crack in the door. Abby notices her and freaks out, calling her out for being creepy. She wants to know what's going on. She's been more suffocating than usual, and Maggie divulges that she's going to miss her. Abby reminds her that she'll only be two hours away, but she's worried. Who will protect her when she's gone? Completely at odds as usual, she says she doesn't actually need anyone's protection, and her mom agrees that she is very strong. But if anyone touches a hair on her head, she will find them and hurt them. Abby points out, importantly, that when she says stuff like that, it's for her benefit, not Abby's. Abby doesn't need to hear any of that kind of stuff, but she seems to say it an awful lot. She explains that she's just trying to say that I love you. Then just say that, Abby says in exasperation. Easy enough, Maggie attempts to loosen up a little bit at least, and lets her join her for some whiskey. If anyone's going to show her how to drink, it's going to be her mama. She kisses her knuckle and gives Abby a playful punch to her confusion. They count down and both gulp down the brown and eventually fall asleep, once more cradling her daughter in her arms. They attempt to shop for some other clothing, but Abby turns down everything they encounter. Her mom won't allow her to wear a sweatshirt every day, while Abby is totally fine with it. Mom argues that it'll make her look weak, and she starts making fun of her accent, joking about how getting a cracking jumper would be just the ticket. Yeah, Maggie does let her be herself is the point. She stopped dead in her tracks and sees David browsing in a nearby section. She orders Abby to get behind her and stomps over, breathing heavily to get a closer look. The store noises get louder and take over as they did before when first seeing the man. She grabs Abby and drags her out of the store in a hurry, only asking her to trust her. When they get home, Abby runs off, shouting for her mom to stop being so crazy. Maggie knocks at the door and she tells her to go away. She tries to explain that it's a challenging time right now for her. Her going away and work are creating stress. Don't be scared, she whispers, I'm on top of it, but gets no response from the other side of the door. And again, it sounds more like what Abby said. She's saying this more for herself, trying to reassure herself she really is still holding things together. Not looking very likely at this point. In another meeting, her demeanor could not be more different than before. Now staring off deep in thought and not keeping up with the conversation. She finally pipes up and mumbles her way through a non-answer. She starts getting distressed again and excuses herself. Out in a park, she rubs her hands in consternation and leans back, staring at the leaves blowing in the breeze. Just as she seems to have calmed down, she glimpses the man casually reading a newspaper nearby. She walks right up to him and flatly tells him to go away. David plays naive at first. Ah, you must have me confused with someone else. She seems pretty sure it's him, calling him a motherfucking goddamn piece of shit. He then drives 
drops the axe and tells her that Ben is with him. Right down here, he points to his stomach. She growls, that's a lie, and he teases that if she raises her voice, he's going back to the boulevard. He starts to walk off, and she stops him, asking what he's going to do. Go home, he replies. And he recounts their interaction, but things didn't go down as we saw. He claims that she came up and shook his hand and told him all about Abby. Don't you remember, he toothily smirks? She screams again for him to go away and mulls over his version of things. And she still doesn't recall it the way that he did. And we didn't see her mention Abby at all either. Something ain't right there. She seeks out some help from the police and learned that she was involved with David 22 years ago, the same time that she last drew. Hmm. She hasn't seen him since she was 19. And then a week ago, he appeared out of nowhere. She's seen him only in public places, but refuses to believe that it's all a coincidence. The cop inquires if he's harassed her or accosted her in any way. No, she says glumly, but she knows what he's capable of. Unfortunately, there's not much they can do without something more concrete to go on, and he offers for her to contact him if things escalate. Looks like she's gonna have to take care of things herself and gets an extra lock installed on the door. She then digs through a safe and retrieves a revolver. Yeah, wow, she is pretty serious. At the office, Maggie is back to staring off into the distance late at night, and Gwen goes over to say hi. She brings up her internship is ending soon, but Maggie is preoccupied, asking if she could kill someone. You know, if you had to. You or them. Gwen doesn't think so, and Maggie is displeased, harshly asking why. Gwen can sense something going on, and says that she's a good listener if she needs someone to talk to. She first asks if Gwen has ever done something bad in her life, her awkwardly admitting that she has. Maggie, it turns out, has her own baggage, which is at the center of her entire character. Character. She launches into an incredibly long monologue that fills us into the history of her and David. Back when she was 18 and living with her biologist parents, they took a gig at a facility in Canada. She drew obsessively at the time and dreamed of being an artist. She thought the environment would be inspiring, but it was not. The reality is there was no one around and it was incredibly boring. Though there was one man, David, a biologist from another university. She calls him handsome and charismatic, and he soon took notice of her. Of course he did, she laughs. And 18 year old in that remote place. Sounds kind of greasy. He wisely charmed her parents first and they fell in love with him. Before long, it was the four of them hanging out all the time. He would entertain them with stories and even got her wine and pills. After a scant few weeks of dating, she moved in with him and her hippie parents were not bothered, saying she was grown up as far as they were concerned. Interesting parallel between Abby and Maggie there age-wise. She's obviously worried that Abby will make a mistake like she did when she was her age, but Abby's different as we know. At first, the relationship was wonderful. All she knew is that she felt important and appreciated, and didn't object whenever he would ask her to do things, which he referred to as kindnesses. These were innocuous things at first, like cooking or cleaning, but then evolved into something much more alarming, like meditating for hours or fasting for days. After she did a kindness, he would shower her with praise and affection. The more she did, the more inspired he became, and she believed him. Every word that he said, no matter what was requested, she did as asked. If there was something she couldn't do, he would order her to burn herself with cigarettes, and even that was no big deal for her. When winter came, her parents went home, but she stayed behind. It was five months before she even realized that she was pregnant. David told her to keep it a secret and forbade her from giving birth. She did try to stop it, but it kept growing. This led to a change for the couple, as since getting pregnant, David was no longer inspired, no matter how many kindnesses she tended to. She eventually gave birth right in bed, and as soon as looking at her baby, she realized this is why she was put on this earth and named him Benjamin. For a few weeks, things were okay. David didn't 
didn't care much about the baby, so she took care of him on her own. She didn't think that she could love anything more than David, but well, here we are, and David could feel that too. It came to a head one day when he asked her to head into town to get supplies. The first time she had ever left baby Ben's side, when she returned, two of the baby's fingers were all that was left of him. All David would tell her is that he ate the baby up. He's in my belly now, Maggie, he would say over and over. She went into a deep depression and stopped eating as a result. David continued the ruse that the baby was inside of him. He could feel it moving and hear him crying out for her. And after a while, she could hear him too, suffering, trapped, but alive. The relationship deteriorated further as David wouldn't let her come near him and his kindnesses became more difficult. She still tried her best, but sighs that she wasn't as strong as she thought. So she stole some money and fled east to America where she hoped he would never be able to find her. Well, that certainly clears up a bunch of stuff regarding the mysterious David and certainly it was an abusive relationship. As for actually eating the baby, I'm not so sure. We'll come back to that later. Gwen is flabbergasted at the story and struggles to find the appropriate reaction, believing that it must be some kind of sick joke. Maggie dismisses the whole thing. Ah, yeah, just go home and forget that it ever happened. It's just a story. Later in bed, she replays her conversation and remembers him mentioning the Boulevard. A short online search later, and she's found the Boulevard Hotel with a measly one-star review. Yeesh, must be a real dump. She stakes outside and waits for him to hopefully show up. He does later and strolls out the front door, so she follows after him slowly, trying to avoid being noticed. He enters a diner and orders some coffee, and she follows in right after. He is quite casual to see seeing her, telling her good morning and to take a seat. He compliments that she is still beautiful after all these years, and she bites back that he looks like shit. She tells him to get out of town now, or she'll do whatever must be done. He asks her to relax, we'll all be fine, even Abby. He's curious about her father. Maggie reveals that she basically just went out to bars and picked up dudes until she got pregnant, making it sound like after losing Ben, she was in a desperate search for a replacement after what happened. She wants to know why he's here, and he states that Ben is inside of him, and he wants to know why his mother abandoned him. He should hate you for what she did. She calls him a pig, and David is unbothered. Now you know he's alive and taken care of. He's still here thanks to his charity, but he warns that at any minute, he could change his mind and purge the boy from his body. As for what he wants from her, it's time to request another of his trademark kindnesses. He tells her that from now on, she has to walk barefoot to work every day until he's satisfied. If she does as told, then he will leave and her life will go on. She accuses that this will just go on on and on forever and ever, but he assures her that he's a man of his word. She unloads on him that she does not take orders or do his bidding anymore. Whatever he's trying will fail, and threatens to kill him if he comes near her or Abby. He points out that if she kills him, then she'll lose Ben too, and he smirks that all he wants is for her to be happy. He plops down some cash, and she notices the number five on a key ring, which must be his room at the hotel. She follows her morning routine, and then stops in the garage, considering, is she really going to do this? She relents, and takes off her shoes in frustration, and then makes the track all the way to work as ordered, and once outside the building shouts, are you happy now? Now disappear. Abby is growing increasingly worried about her mom's behavior, and accurately thinks that she needs to see somebody. Maggie brushes it off, saying that she's fine, but she needs her help with something, and needs her to be extra careful. If a stranger tries to talk to you or interact with you in any way, leave immediately. She fibs again that it's someone from work that she fired, and does give her his real name. Abby doesn't recall her mentioning any other 
other Brits at her work, but Maggie is certain that she did. Ultimately, her compulsive nature can't keep her away from David, and she goes right back to stalking him despite their arrangement. She waits for him to leave and uses the opportunity to scope out his place. There's nothing too out of the ordinary at first, until she finds a photo on the wall of when she was younger, along with what must be one of her previously mentioned geocentric drawings. She frantically digs through the drawers and discovers a package wrapped in tissue and marked M. She begins to unwrap it, and just seeing a peek of the blanket within sends her into uncontrollable sobs. She forces her way to open the rest, and it must be a blanket that belonged to Ben. She takes it close and sniffs the material gratefully. Her moment is ruined when the hotel clerk enters, screeching for her to get out of here immediately. She's drawn further into her memories, recalling the little baby flailing its limbs all around. A blurry figure approaches the innocent child, and she gasps awake. Yum, 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 yum. Crispy baby time. She runs to the mirror and sees a strange stain on her shirt, as though she is lactating. The divide between her and Abby gets more severe, as she isn't even responding anymore from her room, and Maggie attempts to butter her up with 20 bucks for each text that she sends. Pretty desperate at this point, she, rather than going to work, continues her obsession, changing into stalking gear. She waits outside for David at the diner, and then down past the bridge. Seemingly hours later, as it's now nighttime, she is still tailing him, and he reaches his destination of a bench with a nice view. She goes home to prepare for her confrontation, and sees a billion texts from Abby, all saying okay over and over. Easy money! Now a word from our sponsor, Audible. Your online home for audiobooks, podcasts, and audio series. We're inviting you to listen now to the new original docuseries series Funny My Way on Audible. Go to audible.com slash funny my way to check it out now. You can also try Audible for 30 days free and get binging. Join the hilarious J.B. Smoove into a deep dive into the lives, careers, and impacts of six black comedy icons. Episode cover legends like Paul Mooney, Flip Wilson, Moms Mabley, Dick Gregory, Rudy Ray Moore, and Red Fox. Hear how these fearless heroes of black comedy broke color lines and made it to the top by doing it their way. The series features commentary and insight from Cedric the Entertainer, D.L. Hughley, Godfrey, Margaret Cho, Dion Cole, Sandra Bernhard, and many more. Listen on Audible by going to audible.com slash funny my way now. You can get a free 30-day trial to explore Audible and its vast library of podcasts, audiobooks, guided wellness, and Audible originals. All your favorites wherever you go. Now word from our sponsor, Babbel. Babbel is the fun and easy way to learn a new language and has over 10 million subscribers. It's all thanks to their addictively fun and easy bite-sized language lessons. You know, with summer upon us, it's making me think of doing some traveling. Just getting out of the house would be nice, you know? I've been dreaming of returning to the Amalfi Coast in Italy. And thanks to taking lessons with Babbel, I've got a leg up to learning the language and really immersing myself in the culture further than before. What's great is that it only takes about 10 minutes to complete a lesson, so you can start having real-life conversations in a new language in as few as three weeks. Bellissimo! That's... Italian. Their lessons are second to none, thanks to the work of over 150 language experts, and their methods are scientifically proven to be effective, so you'll know you'll be satisfied with the courses. Right now, when you purchase a three-month Babbel subscription, you'll get an additional three months for free. That's six months for the price of three. Just go to Babbel.com and use promo code ENDING. That's B-A-B-B-E-L.com code ENDING. Also, you can try Babbel risk-free, as it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. She 
returns to watching him, and he follows the same routine of leaving the diner and walking to his very far out of the way bench to doze off. This time when she returns home, there's an unwelcome surprise. Peter, along with Abby, have joined forces to express their concern about her. She also hasn't been at work for a week, meaning her stuff with David has truly taken over her life. She wants to speak to Peter alone and gives him a dressing down for showing up here uninvited. He counters that they're friends, and if he sees one of his friends in trouble, he's going to help no matter what. He tries to at least give her a number for a shrink, and Maggie only gets more annoyed. She owes him nothing. If she doesn't return his calls, he still has no right to show up here, and reminds us that she would do anything for her children. He catches the slip and thinks that she needs to get some sleep. She's had enough yelling for him to get out. He attempts one more time to leave the card, and she flips her lid even further. She storms into her daughter's room, telling her to never answer the door or leave the apartment without her. Abby cries, you can't keep me in prison, I'm an adult. Making Maggie's feelings abundantly clear, she screeches that she's a child and you will do as I say. But Abby has figured out that her mom lied to her. No one named David Moore ever worked where she did. She comes clean, first apologizing before saying it's someone who means to hurt them. Abby accuses her of lying again. There's no guy, you're just making all this up to keep her here and control her. Abby believes she's pinned down what's really going on here. She's all grown up and is going off to college and Maggie can't take it. Mm, well, Maggie tries to assure her that it will all be over tomorrow and she's safe here, but Abby clearly doesn't feel that way. She later finds David at his favorite bench, as expected. She sneaks up on him, and he conveniently looks zonked out. She retrieves the gun and gets her shot at the ready, her hand trembling as she points the gun at the back of his skull. To her surprise, David starts talking, muttering, if you kill me, you killed him. She rounds the bench to face him, and David opens his eyes. She's even more nervous now as he stares intently at her. He makes a move for the gun, and she gets knocked to the ground. He smiles, don't move, I have a gun, and reminds her that he's right here in his tummy. That's why she couldn't fire. She counters that he's dead and you killed him. And he coos, nah-uh. Can you hear him crying? He grabs her head and brings it closer to listen, her still repeating that he's dead. Miraculously, she then makes out what does sound like a baby crying from within his body. David says Ben doesn't understand why she allowed this to happen, for him to get hurt, and why she ran. What kind of mother abandons her child when he needs her the most? She weakly spits on him, reiterating once more to stay away from her daughter. David cuts to her core, calling Abby merely a substitute for Ben, similar to what I was saying earlier. She was so hung up on losing Ben that she tried to have another baby to fill that void. Also, as she violated the terms of their agreement, even tried to kill him and all, it's time for another kindness. Assume the position in the park from 2 a.m. until dawn every night until he says otherwise. He's adamant that he's a man of his word, and as he saunters off, she screams that she's gonna kill him. It appears that she stays up all night, unable to sleep with him lurking out there, and is now looking bleary-eyed and much worse for wear. Things take another tragic turn for the mother, as Abby has reached her limit and is leaving. Maggie doesn't get it, wishing her happy birthday, and her kid lays out plainly, don't try to call me or follow me. She mumbles about how she left the baby behind, and she should burn in hell for what she did. What's happening only clicks when she hears the door close and chases Abby out in the streets begging to talk. She quickens her pace and hops in an Uber, and just like that, she's gone. Maggie takes a moment to collect herself and see that she has a stalker of her own, Peter, watching from around a corner. She chases him down and completely dominates him, wanting to know what he's doing here. He moans that she's sick and he's in love with her. She's disgusted by Peter and all men. They can't stick their dick in anything without hating or loving it. She grabs him by the collar and gets gravely serious. If you get in the way of my mission once more, I will beat you until you are dead. Getting a little unhinged there, lady. She comes home and suddenly loses her balance, as though her body is out of her control, chanting no, 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 before passing out. She comes to later and calls Abby, promising that she will protect her and keep her safe. She will not fail again. She does her meditation positions in the park and still also walks barefoot to work in the morning. She
she almost appears to be floating her way through the office, and no one is saying good morning now, or perhaps she's so much in her own head at this point. She takes refuge in her office, and just kind of stares until the phone rings. She has a visitor, none other than David, who points out that she has changed her last name. What's wrong with Walsh? He asked her how last night was, and suggests they still work to ease the pain, quiet the noise, and make her proud. This makes it sound like he more or less poisoned her brain in a way, so that achieving these kindnesses is also associated with her being able to feel better. That's why she's trying to replace these things with stuff like jogging or steamy affairs, but nothing works the same as the kindnesses from what we gather. David goes on that he's the only person who sees her for who she really is. These people don't know what she's capable of. She's a warrior, a champion. He's also the only one that can see the hole right in the center of her heart, left by losing Ben. She created this whole life, this character, in order to fill it. You think this job would fill it? You made a whole daughter, and that didn't work either. Nothing can heal her except for him. He tells her to meet up with him at a room tonight. It's been 22 years. It's time to reunite with her son. She can only muster back a week Fine. After all the madness going on, she hunkers at her desk, clutching the blankie, and Gwen stops by glad that she seems to be feeling better. Maggie inquires about the bad guy she was dating, and she hasn't seen him again. She wants to know, I helped you with things, right? Yeah, Gwen nods, of course, lots of things. This at least gets Maggie to elicit a little smile, and she promises that her recommendation letter will be glowing. She records a goodbye message for Abby, in case something happens to her. She says that she left a letter explaining everything that happened to her a long time ago, and apologizes it for hiding it for so long. She was hopeful that she could make everything okay, but luck, it seems, was not in her favor. She does feel lucky, however, to have Abby. A million deaths would be worth the 18 years that she spent with her. She hopes she's able to understand why she did what she did, but if not, she feels that one day when she has children of her own, she will understand it. When you become a mother, your life doesn't mean so much anymore. You become disposable. Gloriously disposable, she laments. She shows up to the room for their final showdown, and David is incredibly laid back as always, rambling about the view and offering her some wine. She gets right to business, wanting to know about the gun, which he says he tossed into the river. No more of that. He has something for her. It's one of her old drawings, the very one she was working on the first day he laid eyes upon her. Every morning, she'd be at the beach with her pad, working for hours on the same drawing, and never knew that he was watching. She says that she did, in fact, know, but I guess kind of liked it. He kept watching her for a while and never said anything before turning his attention on buttering up her parents. She admits that he was always very clever at getting exactly what he wanted. He poses that she's the same way, but she argues that she was just a child. Then one night, you were there at my door, and then within minutes, a world that seemed so cruel and disorderly became immaculate. David finally remembers their time together, describing it as perfect, and cries that he missed her so much. He takes a seat on the bed, telling her that Ben is awake and moving. Would she like to feel? He says his name and gets a kick in response that rattles her. David cooing, it's okay, he's just saying hello. He opens the floor for her to talk to him, and she apologizes for being a bad mom, and David says, it's okay. He forgives you. She breaks down, and he takes her in his arms as she starts to full-on ball, rocking her back and forth. She can't believe it, beaming that my son is alive, but is concerned that he's suffering. David says, I don't worry about that. He's happy now that she's here. She now thanks him for bringing him back. I have him now, and he has me, meaning we don't need you anymore. She lifts up a sleeve, revealing a hidden blade underneath. He tries to talk things out, but she's way past that point, and swipes him on the side of the head. He asks her to calm down as the baby has started crying. 
He doesn't like the arguing, but it's a trick as he lunges on top of her going for the blade. He wrestles it loose and pokes it at her neck, warning to not move or else. He doesn't understand why she did this. He came to her with the greatest gift of all. And as we know, without him, there's no Ben. We are one and we loved you. She pulls out another secret blade and he rushes her, crashing into the TV. She gets him in the side and he returns the favor in her shoulder. She refuses to give up and painfully crawls her way across the floor as he starts getting weaker, mumbling that they can be a family again. She gets to her feet and yanks the phone cable out and drags him into place, tying his hand to the bed. He reminds her that if he dies, Ben dies, and then changes his tune, calling her a terrible mother. Ben had her all wrong. She growls that she's a good mother. You're a murderer. He states one more time she'll kill Ben too, but she says that she'll just have to be quick in that case. She jams a knife into his torso, and he keeps talking. It's not my fault. I would have done anything. I came back. While she takes the knife all the way down his torso. I see you, Maggie, he whispers before fading away. She cautiously jams her hands into the cavity and splits the ribs with a guttural yell. She digs through the body, pulling out his insides in desperation. Her look changes as something catches her eyes, and there is a baby nestled in the gutty works just as David claimed. Hey you, she whispers, and retrieves the baby, telling him it's good to see you, and I saved you. The baby begins to cry, and she brings it to her bosom, letting out a sigh of relief. I saved you, she repeats to herself, still in disbelief. We then pick up with the family back together, and it feels perfect. Maybe too perfect? Abby zips up a duffel bag and looks around her room, now all packed up. She's finally leaving for college. Maggie is in bed, cradling Ben, and asks if she wants to hold him. She takes him, and Maggie looks truly happy, doing her knuckle-kiss punch thing. Abby is all smiles too, and thanks her, saying she has something else to say. She tells her mother that she's not scared anymore. Maggie made everything okay, so she's not scared. An even bigger grin crosses her face, appearing content for once, or it's perhaps that she's completely lost touch with reality for good, as her smile then fades away, and a look of terror seeps in, and she sucks in a deep gasp. And her gasp reminds us of every time she would wake after a nightmare. It was the same thing seen here, as though dream and reality have become intertwined and indistinguishable. Alright, what the heck is going on here, right? Is this baby real? Is she really going crazy? What's the deal? Well, this very last scene makes it clear which way things go overall. There's a lot to look at overall in the story, but let's first focus on the seemingly fantastic happy ending because this will help us work out the bigger picture and something here really sticks out amongst all the smiles abby specifically thanks her mom for helping her and allowing her to not be afraid anymore yeah remember that conversation earlier very vividly between them abby wasn't scared and didn't need her mother's constant reassurance conversely here she is echoing exactly what her mom said which abby also mentioned then was truly for her own good not abby's thusly none of how she's behaving rings true to abby it's really maggie's own idea realized projection of her we're seeing. This moment alone is enough to convince me this ending is a fantasy in Maggie's mind, and she has truly broken from reality in the end. Then we further pile on things like her baby somehow living inside a dude's tummy for 20 years, and can't help but start to really question the whole story we're being presented. As we peel back more, it feels that it's really more about being a representation of Maggie's mental state rather than taking reality as presented. So this calls into question the reality of everything up to that point. I'd say it starts as a more accurate representation of reality, and then after after David shows up, things start getting more and more in her head. It's hard to say if David really ever was there, but he is more to represent those lingering fears and paranoia that she still carries all these years later. It's when he shows up that these start really bubbling back to the surface and eventually take over completely. The issue all stems back to her abusive relationship with David and then of course in losing Ben. Not only did David more or less poison her mind and pervert how she approaches problems, but also was responsible for killing the boy. Since she seemed to have simply ran away, she never actually dealt with any of these 
these problems head on in a real way. That's why it's always lingering in the back of her mind. What would happen if David ever returned? This is compounded with Abby maturing and turning 18. Maggie is terrified that something similar to David will happen to her. And without Maggie lording over her all the time, she doesn't have that constant watchful eye to protect her. The reality is she needs to let go of this fear. Just as David said, there is a hole in the middle of her heart. And the only way to fill it is to get Ben back. However, this can't actually happen. Maggie needs to learn how to heal and move on from her loss. The point is, in the end, she can't and succumbs to her own fantasy to fill that void. A fantasy reunion with her boy and Abby, just like she had been striving for. That brings us to the conclusion of this scene explained for Resurrection. Don't forget, before we go, you can send me requests for any movies or TV shows you'd like to see me explain by sending them my way on any of my social media accounts at Foundflix. What did you think of Resurrection and its ending? Do you think David was real, or is it all just in Maggie's mind? Let me know your thoughts down in the comments below. Make sure to like, subscribe, and follow. Thanks for watching Foundflix. See you next time.